G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today we got to have a chat with the amazing Dr. Ellen Nicholson about her journey into OT and about how OTs are able to maintain some of that occupation in their own practice. Apparently, you put people at ease and ask really good questions, so it's up to you to interview me. Who said that? Uh, Anita. That's a lie. That's a blatant lie. I don't interview. I just converse. Okay. I don't like, I don't like, I don't know. I've never. Because what we hear at the end isn't what, what happens on the day. Oh, no, it pretty much is. Oh, okay. I, I just ask questions. I don't plan it. I just ask questions as I go based on what's. Interesting at the time. Okay. I'm, but I've never, even clinically, I've never been like, yes, formal interview, start, finish, end, body, conclusion, summary, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, I just talk to people. Not a real OT then, are you? No, I'm not. I don't even color code my notes or anything. Like, I can't be a real <laughs> OT. Neither do I, though. <laughs> We're just in a special reject OT club. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me about how you found OT. Um, Well, my students will laugh if they're listening to this because I've heard this story a thousand times. But the reason that I'm an OT is because I'm not a physio. I didn't get into physio. Um, I really wanted to be uh, a doctor and I didn't do well enough at school to become a doctor. And it turned out I didn't also do well enough at school to become a physio. So hence I didn't get into physio. Um, And it wasn't... Those were kind of like my first two choices and I hadn't even really registered that OT was a real thing um, until I my application was declined and I thought, you know, I was thinking about whether I should have another attempt at um, applying and I went to Waikato Hospital, which is a hospital in Hamilton, and I followed around a physiotherapist and I didn't want to, I didn't want to do what she was doing. I wanted to do what the other lady was doing. <laughs> I want that one over there. That one there. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. She seemed to be doing some more interesting things. And so I went back to the school I was at at the time and I talked to the guidance counselor about occupational therapy. And it seemed like it might be a better fit in terms of um, things that I was interested in doing. And then um, I applied and I got in. It was a bit more of a palaver. Yeah. So this is 1992. <laughs> I don't want to know how old that makes me. Um, 1992, I interviewed for a place, and I think they took about 45 at that point, and I got in. Well, there you go. And the rest is history. Yeah. There you go. And now you're an OT and a doctor. Yep. And the head of a program. And the head of a program. (laughs) Which program? Uh, Head of Occupational Therapy at AUT. Which is Auckland. Yeah, Auckland University of Technology. So the program's run out of there for as long as I was in the second intake once. So in New Zealand, the program um, used to run out of Wellington um, and then split into two uh, in about 1990. And um, so AUT picked up one. It was AIT or ATI. We've changed our name so many times. Then And the other one went to Otago Polytechnic. And it still runs out of those two programs in New Zealand. Okay, so we, we, did you go to uni at one of those? Yep. yep. I, I went to AUT. So I am a graduate of oh, the you've program. Oh, full circle. I've gone full circle. So I graduated in 1994 
and then finished my doctorate there in 2013. So I've actually graduated twice from ET. And now you're running the show. Well, <laughs> well my on, name's on the on piece paper. of uh, next to the title. I'm not confident I ran the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the title. Well, that's, that's, that's half the battle. So where did you go once you finished? Like where did you where did you start your working? So one of the things I've loved about being an OT is that it's taken me lots of really interesting places. And I think that's one of the challenges with educating OTs is that there's so many options. <laughs> You'll be getting a sense of that now where you are. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to um, educate a therapist for every single context that they're going to go into. So I, as a new graduate, headed off to Christchurch Hospital in South Island um, on a rotation program. And I did, just trying to remember, about seven months um, before I failed miserably at physical health. So I did um, orthopedics where I was, uh, as a new graduate, given a pager and paged when a client or a patient needed a piece of equipment. So I would put down my pool cue. <laughs> so I was playing pool with the health surgeons <laughs> and go and get the piece of equipment and give it to the person in room 17. Uh, and then I did respiratory for about, I don't know, three months. It was just oh, so hard. And I just thought all oh, the whole time I was doing it, I just thought this isn't for me. Did you um, respir- all the way through- respiratory as an OT? Yeah. Yeah, again, giving out equipment and, you know, helping people with their, I don't know, looking after their lungs in some way. Don't roll your eyes like that. I totally agree. But we'll get there. <laughs> but um, And so I knew I wanted to work with children, actually. I'd spent my entire um, degree, so three years of my degree, making my placement pediatric. So I, would, I had a couple of placements in adolescent. Um, and then I had a placement in Christchurch and mental health, and I'd worked with the families of the uh, Tangataway Old Coast consumers, trying to kind of always connect with children through my placement. So I knew that was the kind of area I wanted to go into. And then I did my time in a rotation position, and with the promise of a pediatric rotation that never came through. So I, and that's not anybody's fault, that's just how it was. And I applied. Um, for about three months, I applied regularly for a position in coordinating with health and I think you may have your finger over the microphone. Oh, yeah, there we go. Is it better? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and so I, yeah, so I applied um, every every couple of days for this position. I really wanted it in CAMS, and um, they wouldn't give it to me because I was a new grad. Um, and then I finally wore them down to giving it to me and started there uh, in September of 1995. You are very persistent. <laughs> I was very persistent. I was, was going to say very annoying, but no, no, persistence the word. <laughs> same thing. Same, I same. am forever grateful to Jill, who was the um, charge nurse and the uh, unit manager at that time, for um, giving me a shot because there's no reason she should have. You know, I didn't have any... Um, experience. I didn't have any particular skills, and it is a. I think it is quite a unique place to work an inpatient child and adolescent mental health service. Um, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Was, um, and I say, I was yeah. only I was only talking to my students like what's the time now? About an hour and a half ago about like different areas of mental health and uh, like different areas they could work in and child and youth, uh, like adolescent child child and adolescent inpatient is 
an area that's relatively new to here. We've only just got one in the last two years, three years. Um, so it's it's a relatively new thing in Townsville here. We, this program that I worked in is, has been around for a long time. I'm not sure if it's still there, but um, and I know there are a couple of other um, inpatient units across New Zealand as well for child and adolescent mental health. But um, and uh, you know the kids that need those kinds of services are uh, things are pretty tough. Hmm. Yeah. I think the the mental health act has just changed too, so it explicitly says that I guess children under 16 need to be separated from adult population and inpatient, mental health inpatient. So I suspect that a child and adolescent inpatient facilities are possibly going to get a little bit more uh, or there's going to be more of them, I, I would I would suspect, with the new new mental health act that's just come in. And, and you know, it's really hard to know um, how to do this stuff best you know because there are the needs are really complex and that's one of the things that came up in my doctorate is we talked about the changing complexity of, or the increasing complexity of need and what that looks like particularly for occupational therapists um, and particularly as we know that there is um, a strong correlation between what the kids are doing or not doing and how that impacts on their health and well-being so um, yeah it, it has I think, I mean, I did some fairly traditional things in that role. I'm sensory integration trained, so I went off and did my sensory integration training. And um, was, it, was that with the, the brushes and stuff? Was no, that I didn't. That no, that's what, that's the wheelbarrow technique. No, I didn't do that. It was more about using, um, looking at the sensory needs of kids and, and integrating the issues around. Um, that's a very poor. Um, definition of sensory integration. That's, that's you just re, re given me the name. So, yeah, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I did all the sort of the so called right traditional things. Um, but then kind of came to discover for myself what um, the things that kind of worked better, which were the everyday things that kids needed and wanted to be doing rather than the uh, treatment type things. The, the so, more prescriptive things that yeah. I think quite often stuff- people get. I think by. too, yeah, and I think too it's really complicated because when the particularly when kids have quite a significant need, you're looked at as the person who's going to help with that, addressing that need, um, and it's really hard to work out what your role might be when it's really complicated. I think I'd say that's probably even harder again as a sort of relatively new clinician because you're yeah. one, not only sure that you know what's what's the need, but is this my job? Am I able to do this? Is it like there's a whole heap, sort of another layer of complexity just because you're inexperienced in that area? Yeah, and I think there is an element of that that happens that you kind of lean towards the more um, traditional things or things that have been done before as you start to work out your identity and what kind of therapist you're going to be and where you're going to position yourself. And that's the kind of one of the interesting things about being an OT as well is that there is a, I think you, oh, for me, oh, I don't know for other people, but for me, when I left university, I got quite a kind of, um, a, quite a shock about what the, the, the gap, I guess, between the things I'd learned at school and some of the things that were happening in practice. So we'd never done sensory integration. Um, and I, I thought it was this really, really cool, interesting thing. Um, and then when I, did some training in it and and I, it didn't seem to it didn't it wasn't the way that I wanted to go. 
I wanted to be sort of more, I was much more interested in what the kids were doing in the classroom or not doing in the classroom or needing to do with their friends or the family, the occupations in the family that they were or weren't doing together or wanted to participate in and how to kind of make that work. Um, and so I guess, I mean, sometimes it's a, one of, one of the things I'm quite um, heartened by is all the things that we do are kind of, they're, they're always in the right direction. Mm. It's just kind of a matter of finding out what works best for you and your clients. Yeah. So yes. have you, were you in mental health your whole sort of clinical career? Yep. Always yep. So in- I've, I've done one year at Starship Hospital. So after I left um, – the, I, I left the Child and Family Unit for a position in Auckland with the Children's Trauma Programme, which was a new service that had been set up at that point by the Auckland City Mission. They were wanting to design and deliver a service for kids who've experienced any kind of trauma. And so, well, children and families, really, because families experience the trauma of the child. Mm. Um, and so we, um, I was uh, incredibly fortunate to be um, selected to be part of that team um, with uh, play therapists, play specialists and psychotherapists and psychologists. And it was just the most amazing opportunity as an OT um, to uh, set up the program. So we designed it and um, delivered this um, what was really incredibly innovative service um, in Auckland. And so we, uh, I moved back to Auckland um, from Christchurch to be, I was there for maybe about four or five years. And the, the service um, has unfortunately closed, so it doesn't run anymore. And it shut soon after I left at that point. Um, I, I got a little bit disillusioned at that point, and I think this happens in everyone's career as well, about what occupational therapy was and whether I really wanted to do it anymore. And um, I'd met this really great guy who ended up being my husband. So I kind of, um, yeah, was trying to make, um, I found it really difficult to stay. I took a break. That's probably the, the best way to put it. I took a break mm-hmm. from the profession. And at that point, I'd also finished my master's degree. So I did my master's through the University of South Australia and had, oh, no, I hadn't finished. I'd nearly finished. When we went to America, I finished um, my papers there. Um, and I think the break was really important because it helped me to renew my passion for, I mean, it was only 18 months, but I had thought when, I left for America that I might not come back and be an OT, that I might think about doing something else. Um, And so it was kind of cool that um, when I came back 18 months later, I was fired up and ready to get back into it again. So So I picked up a position at Starship. How long out of uni were you when you decided you needed a break? It must have been about eight years out. So I think there's a kind of – uh, well, for me, it was, a, you know, that seven or eight year thing. Things seem to happen in patterns of seven, seven, seven or eight seven, years. Well, they seven year itch or whatever they call it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's called something like that. So um, I think I just, I'd seen and heard quite a lot of traumatic things as a result of the role that I'd been in. And I think it was um, also a bit of burnout, you know, the, um, yeah, just wanting to take a bit of a break and see where I get to next and finish it. I really wanted to finish my master's. And I knew I'd do a doctorate at some point, um, but it was just a matter of kind of working out what it would be in and where it would go next. So when you came back, what did you go into? Starship Hospital. So that's our children's hospital here in Auckland. And I was there for 
only about 12 months when the opportunity came up to teach at AUT. Um, so uh, this is my, as well as being a graduate of AUT twice, I've also worked at AUT twice. <laughs> so well, just, clearly AUT is something important to me. You just can't get away. Just drawing you back in. <laughs> so I uh, taught, went into teaching at that point um, for about four years until I had Callum. So Callum's 15 next week. Um, and at that point I left teaching because it just didn't so he was about one when I left teaching because it just didn't well it didn't work for me having a one-year-old and being in a lecture at eight o'clock in the morning so um, I, I reluctantly stepped away from it but um, as a result of doing that I went into uh, workforce development so uh, in child and adolescent mental health and I see all these many and varied things that I've done. So I set up a clinical placement project that um, will help to um, implement the clinical placement project at the Weary Centre. And then I did some research and evaluation work for them. And then I left them to become the professional leader for mental health at the Auckland District Health Board. And then I left that to go back to AUT. So a full-time position came up. And I always knew I'd probably go back teaching. I love teaching. But you're going to say um, you always knew you were going to go back to AUT. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I could have told you that. <laughs> by the sounds of cool. it, by the sounds of it, that was you were never going to end up anywhere else. <laughs> but it does seem a little bit like that. Um, who knows, though? Only 45, anything could happen. So um, I, yeah, and I've been there six years five years something like that so had you only just started there when we met because that would have been about that long ago adelaide yeah i started in 2013 wow so you would have been but you were just you weren't running the show then you were just teaching. so i started on my birthday in 2013 so and i handed in my doctorate at the end of that year so that's well, there you go um, yeah, and I think we did you how did we was it a virtual exchange? We met at the virtual exchange when you presented on your PhD. I and did. I have been annoying you ever since. Okay, cool. It's okay. Yeah, no, because you presented and I've I think I've actually still got I found the slides the other day. I think I've still got your presentation. <laughs> I think I presented actually what didn't end up being um, all of my findings. So at that point, I think I had presented my kind of where I was up to at that point. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that, yeah, that sounds about right. But what I was going through at the time very much was like the perfect presentation for what was going, for, going on for me clinically at the time. I was kind of going through that, uh, similar to what you spoke about before, where I was Kind of like, well, what the what the hell am I doing? This like, is this what OT is? Like, I'm not doing what I was expecting to be doing as an OT, and you know, if this is if this is what it is, then I'm out. Like, this is this isn't what I signed up for, kind of thing. Um, I do hear a few people talk about that. They're kind of um, a, a point in their career where they get a little bit disillusioned about what it's about and I do think also that that some of that and I'm I'm not I'm not trying to psychoanalyze what it's about but some of it it feels like um this um this thing that we've got going on in the profession which is um the kind of two two roads the 
what is that, two roads diverge in a wood and a high, I took the one less travelled. The thing about going down the less travelled road, because the, um, there is a lot of um, rhetoric and discourse and, you know, about that kind of, um, I, I like to call it more of a treatment approach, you know, that kind of remediation. Um, and we see it a lot on the 4OT pages where people are asking about the kind of um, the best thing to do if the person has a lung problem yeah. and I'm thinking um, refer them to someone who helps with lung problems yeah. like I've kind of got it and I think that's the point we're at at the profession this is just my opinion where that um, people could either go down the path of doing that treatment kind of stuff and be recognized and all those sorts of things that come with that or they can take the path which is the one that we should take, which is about being ex. Well, I think we should take, which is about being experts in doing, and um, that's stolen from Gail Whiteford, by the way. <laughs> experts in doing, I use that all the time. Thank you so much to her for sharing that with me. Um, thank you, Gail. <laughs> thank you, Gail. But um, this, uh, yeah, this uh, the the roots of the profession are embedded in occupation, and we kind of took this route. This is the joy of doing a PhD that you we took a route into being sort of medically um, rob medically recognised and robust profession, whatever that looks like or sounds like in terms of being able to offer um, degrees of movement and all those sorts of things. And so, um, and you can if you look at our history, you can see why we did that. We did that for a reason, um, but it's time to come home. <laughs> Uh, Come back to occupation. Well, that's and that's you know very well that I 100% agree with that and have you know run a few little projects and whatnot to try and assist people with that because quite often what I found was people weren't I say people the OTs weren't even really hadn't really even thought about it they'd just sort of gone down that track without any sort of conscious like oh am I still sort of in touch with you know, my occupation as means kind of thing. And you've got to think it's really easy to do. Like oh, yeah. if you're being, um, if the, all the literature is talking about um, a particular approach or um, if all the, you know, everything, every other OT that you meet is working in that way, if you've had your student placements and they looked like that too, that you can kind of see how that happens. What, I'm, what I am seeing is, a kind of groundswell, though, of change, mm. which is really cool, Definitely. which is, yeah, which is um, that gentle challenging of, you know, really, is this is this what we want to be doing as OTs? Or um, Karen Wally-Hamill and her less gentle challenging of the kind of um, I do like violent thing. <laughs> She's probably my hero. Um, her, you know, her um, a critique, because we have to be open to critique. We have to be ready for critique. I can see the Journal of Occupational Science publishing this really cool stuff that's um, that speaks to occupation and uh, gives that um, discourse a voice. Um, more articles coming out, more books being published. Um, our entire program is embedded in occupation. Um, and it, it kind of, and it's, yeah, you can kind of see how um, it, it would, it might be hard. Yeah, but I, I, I still remember the first time I read, I can't remember the name of the paper now, but it was one of um, Hamill's about challenging the categorization of occupations. And I remember reading it going, 
just even like not even she because she gave an alternative, which I think was categories of engagement instead. But my initial thought was, why hasn't it, why don't we challenge this stuff more? Like we just assume yeah. that you know, and and even at that stage, I'd been out, I don't know, say maybe five or six years, and I'd never heard of anyone even contemplate the fact that you know productivity and leisure and self care and all that kind of stuff weren't you know the the gold standard. Or were only one way of seeing it. Oh, yeah. So the thing is, I don't think that they're necessarily the wrong categories. I think that, that we have to be um, aware that they're not the only categories. And so I think that's the, the – and that's why I like to think of, um, you know, what we do in education is around teaching people how to think critically, how to ask those sorts of questions. And I do think there is also a um, – there is a period of time where new grads head out into practice, they follow the conventions of what's been done before, they stick with their kind of what they know and what they think they should be doing, and then they hit that point that we both did, which is, hmm, uh, not sure, I want to question this, it's time for me to kind of um, break this down now and decide what kind of therapist I'm going to be. Yeah. And so I think that, um, I mean, some people take different, their different ways through it, but I do see people... Um, and often that's when they come back and ask about postgrad. You know, it's time for me to ask some questions. Um, or this is the thing that's really bothering me. I want to ask some more questions about that or find out some more about it. Yeah, because I think I, I hit that. I I hit that probably. I hit that fairly early, actually. That that particular phase. Um, I think I was like a year or eighteen months out. Yeah, and. I just, I don't, I can't even, wouldn't even be able to tell you now exactly what it was that made me start going, oh, wait a minute. But it was more than likely the fact that we were doing the same thing with every person. And there was too many of them were just based on the, how the assessments were set up. There was too many of them in my head were coming out with the same answer. And I'm like, how can all of these people, like, if this, if everyone had the same or needed the same answer, why did I just spend four years at uni? I could just start giving this to everyone and then you'd have a 90% hit rate anyway. Like, yeah. it's either the profession's wrong or assessing people in this particular way is wrong. There's got to be another way. So that's when I yeah. started sort of started exploring and then didn't really make huge headway until uh, I was, I'd moved back to Townsville and I was, where was I? I was in the acute unit. And then, yeah, and then saw your presentation on the VX and went, ah, okay. So, all this time I've known something's not right, haven't really known what to do about it, and then saw your presentation as like the three years previous just all sort of clicked into place. And I went, oh, crap. All right. So, what do I do now? And I remember messaging you or getting in contact with you and chatting with you, and I also shot an email off to... Uh, Matthew Molinow and Rob Pereira asking help send me journals and I just got this monster list of like I read this, read this, read this, read this, read this and yeah, there's probably I think a period of about a month where I read just everything um, and all of a sudden like the more that I was taking in it was like okay I've been doing this very long, very wrong for a very long time but now I've sort of got an image of where to go with it and I, dis I disagree with the language around wrong. Like, I don't think it is wrong. I think it's just part of the process. Oh, no, no, but and that's so what I was thinking at the time. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that it takes it it takes some kind of there's something that happens. Maybe this is my next project. There's something that happens between leaving university and um, heading out or leaving a getting a degree, heading out into the world and kind of getting and I think hitting the context like when we think about environmental press like that concept of how um, the environment shapes Mm. and it doesn't doesn't just influence it shapes what you do Um, you know the I use this assessment because this is the only assessment that the service owns (laughs) like that kind kind of stuff you know so um, and I think it's when we start to and I think that's part of the process it is a part of the process of gaining your confidence and starting to feel um, you know a little bit more comfortable and confident in what you're doing and then starting to feel uncomfortable with it and that's okay that's part kind of part of the deal and I think what happens too, and this is also from my doctorate, that people notice when there's a disconnect between um, what's been described in the literature as the meaning and intention of process that there's a of practice that there's a disconnect between that um, the things that people are doing and what they know they want to do or what they know might be the better thing to do or have the better outcomes or feel more um, connected to um, the roots of the profession. And so I do think. Um, that people, I think what we probably need to do is just start being honest about that process, <laughs> you know, that. Yeah, that, if, it's, um, if it's established and it's like a lot of people I've spoken to have gone through very, yeah. very similar uh, processes, it's obviously some kind of, you know, reality basis to it. It's not just a once-off kind of thing. And I think, I mean, I hope that, well, everyone I know, and of course you sound, surround yourself with people who, you know, have the same dreams and aspirations yeah. and ideas that you do. Um, everyone that I know has found their way back to occupation and they really um, are incredibly passionate about it. And I think I want that for everybody. You know, I want everybody to feel that excited about their practice, um, that, as excited as I do. Well, you get once you get people to that stage, they're more than likely going to stay in the profession forever. Like I, I would hazard a guess that around that sort of, you know, well, let's say it's roughly four to seven years out that people sort of hit that stage would be the highest rate of people leaving the profession and going somewhere else. We don't have any facts for any of this. No, no, I'm completely completely basing (laughs) this off people that I know um, that started out or graduated with me or near me or and then sort of have left the profession to do other things. It's all been around that sort of, that time frame, which I suspect is, you know, they maybe they didn't get that sort of like they hit that point where, um, and I'll probably have to ask them, I guess, but maybe they hit that point where they went, well, this isn't for me, like same as I did, but didn't get that sort of nudge over the line to go, oh wait, there we go, now this is this is the track that we go down for the next stage kind of thing. Yeah, um, and I think, yeah, I was just gonna say, I think too that um, it's. You know, there's lots of reasons why people leave the profession and that definitely could be one of them. But I also think that um, there are some people that just get it quite naturally and they, um, you know, remain quite passionate and or feel right from the outset that this is, they know what they're doing and this is what it's all about. And then there are some people that struggle with that. And I I think, yeah, I think the same. And I, I was quite surprised that I did 
But I do think that when I'm given the opportunity to reflect on what that was, I think this the environmental press, the context stuff was really heavily um, influential in pushing me down a route that I didn't necessarily um, want to go, but felt like I should go because um, this is what the OT had always done or this is what the OT had. Um, I remember that I was in the child and family unit and I said I wasn't going to run anger management groups anymore because I just didn't think they really fit very well with my philosophy of occupational therapy. Um, <laughs> it was almost a coup <laughs> because the OT before me had done them and that was her area of expertise and clearly I knew should have had the same expertise and I was like, there isn't any occupation in these groups. I don't know what this is. would be great for a psychologist to be running them, but they're not, they're not an IT group. Yeah. And so um, you do you kind of, I think there is a kind of, um, especially when you feel like you don't have a lot of power, um, it's hard to say, actually, I want to do it like this. And as I got more um, uh, embedded in that role and I was able to shape what it looked like much more, which included lots of my outings and being in the community and looking at the, um, you know, what the kids needed and wanted to do as opposed to what someone else thought that they sh- I should be doing. Yeah, or what they should be doing at this age or yeah. this stage of their lives. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's... The, that's something that's very what, what you described is very similar to pretty much what happened with me in the, the whole operation occupation thing, which is something I've gone over on this podcast before. I think it was the very first podcast was about that. But the OT, I was the first non new grad OT in that position in like 11 or 12 years. Yeah. And it got to where it was when I first stepped into that position. Because the people had just gone along with what they were told was done before them, and the the role itself kind of evolved away from occupation. And I, I like I don't think it's anyone's fault. It's just it's the nature of acute units. Um, yeah. You know, there's work to do, and it gets pushed to whoever's willing to do it. Let alone you know whoever's actual job it is to do it. And I think that that people feel need to feel heartened that coming back to occupation is really easy. Hmm. <laughs> it it just I, requires a few simple things. <laughs> it is, and I think a lot of people think it's this big, scary thing. And I, I've had conversations with people who generally or genuinely are, like, terrified to, like, where do I start? Like, what do I do? Um, the, the, the big thing that I've that I've been questioned about is the fact whether or not we should be using occupational language. Oh, absolutely. Because I've had, I can't remember, I had a discussion with someone the other day. Who was that? I can't remember. Um, who was saying that they were moving away from it because it was jargony. And I'm like, well, actually, I think you should be doing the exact opposite because it's only jargony because no one else understands it because we don't use it. Also, you don't, the thing I think with the language, and you know I am, I, I love the language, um, is that um, it, even if you just start changing the way that you think and um, understand what you're doing using the language and the models, the, the language in particular, um, you don't have to do it overtly, but it, it will change the, what you see and what you do. So. Um, it's. I think it's a really nice way to reconnect with the um, with occupation, 
um, without necessarily needing to be really overt about it in the first instance. And people find that, particularly in my study, people found that really hard. Uh, I'm going to change my practice and I'm not sure everybody's ready kind of stuff. Um, just changing how they talked about and thought about things for themselves was a really good start. Um, yeah, looking through a different lens or um, using the enablement skills as a way to describe what they were doing. Um, and they weren't difficult things to do, but it made people feel a bit more confident in terms of um, uh, using using the language, see, seeing what they were really seeing, like naming what they were seeing, but also feeling like they were doing something that felt more like what they wanted, what they signed up for. And that's like... I always put it back to them, the fact that if you're on an acute unit and you're worried about using our language, have a look at the language that you are using. Look where that came from. Yeah, other, other, pro- other professions don't have that same fear as us for some reason. Yeah. And there's, there's I, I guarantee that our language is easier to understand than any kind of medical terminology. That doesn't stop nurses and doctors and you know physios or whoever else using that kind of language. Yes, yeah. they might not use it just on its own with a client, they'll still have to sort of explain things, but it's the same with us. We can, there's nothing, I don't understand this sort of fear of having to explain what we do. I think too, if you look at sit back and look critically at why we're okay with some language and not some other language and the sort of social construction of occupational therapy, particularly in medical or more medical environments like acute hospitals or um, acute units, mm-hmm. um, there is a, you know, it's part of the um, kind of being in, you know, like if you're, it's about a shared language, but it's a shared language that belongs to someone else or comes from a different place. Mm. And so thinking about why I'm using this language and, you know, thinking about it critically, what is this for? What purpose does it serve? Um, and and when I say critically, I don't mean um Negatively, judgmentally, yeah. I'm, yeah, I just mean objectively, like thinking about why why are some words okay and some words not okay. Um, and I think occupation is the first word that we come across that has has its fair share of problems. That's okay, you know. We just uh, look at that, we name it. We um, when I'm, I often talk about being an expert in doing rather than an expert in occupation, and again. Thank you, Gail, for that. Um, <laughs> because pe- people get doing. They understand what doing is. Everything they need and want to do makes sense to people. Yeah. Um, and it's not highfalutin. It's not fancy. It's just what it is. I call it occupation in the privacy of my own home. However, <laughs> doing is fine for other people. And that's, uh, that's <laughs> it. Like I think, and the same with any profession, the language they use with, say, other professionals is going to be different to the language they use with clinicians. So. Like, I have no issue in using, like, our, you know, jargon with doctors or physios or anything no. like that. Man, I might not use the same level with clients, but even then, I'll still use some of it. And then the, the guys that I have, they they understand it. They get it. Yeah, it and makes I think sense. we underestimate, we underestimate our, um, the people that we're working with and how yeah. um, ready they are for those conversations, but also... Um, we're, the, we're often the only people that are talking to people about 
the things that they do and how they impact on their health and well-being. Hmm. Um, I was I met someone the other day who said to me, "Oh, oh, I hear um, other professions are really interested in occupation and this concept of doing, and they really want to get their hands on it." And I think he was a little bit excited, a little bit surprised when I said, "Oh, that's great! That's fantastic! The more people that do occupation, the better." He was like, "What?" Hold on a second, what? And I was like, yeah, I'm still the expert in it. Yeah. But, you know, if it's a concept that everybody wants to get their hands on, it's going to have great outcomes for people. So I don't have a problem with it. Go for it. Yeah, have a crack. Yeah. I know there's, I know, I remember, oh, I think it was a little while. I don't even know where it was. I can't remember if it was in Australia or in America. There was a big uh, kick up about someone had started calling themselves an occupational physiotherapist. And I remember. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Uh, oh, it might have been in Australia actually, because I think I remember, um, like OT Australia, the national body, like putting out a statement about it, and you know, essentially getting all protective, and this is our thing. You can't have it, kind of. I think, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's the best idea. I mean, I, I'm not sure someone should be able to call themselves an occupational physiotherapist if that's not a real thing. Mm. Um, and it may be someone that's dual trained, so. You know, I don't know. I don't know the context for it. Yeah. But I do. I do think that um, what we've we've got is a really exciting, useful um, approach and, con- and concept and ideas. And um, yeah, we just need to. I don't, I'm really okay with sharing it. Just looking it up to see if I can find it. No. Oh, there we go. Lots of things. What is an occupational therapist compared to a physio? Uh, are you googling? Yeah, I was just looking to see <laughs> if I could find it. Couldn't find it. Oh no, I didn't hear anything about that. I don't think we've had anything. Um, I mean, no, you can only call yourself an occupational therapist if you've done the bachelor's degree. That's pretty much. And I think that that um, might have been their, I guess, basis for their thing is you can't be registered as an occupational therapist, physio, or otherwise. Um, unless you've got the qualification. Yeah, as long as you've got the qualification. I wonder if it was, I don't know the context again, but it might be um, someone with dual training. Yeah, yeah, and that happens. I don't know why that would yeah. happen, but I couldn't imagine spending that long at university to do two undergrads. But I don't even know, actually, whether, no, I wouldn't even know whether you could register under both. I suppose yeah, I know, I know someone. Well, a guy I graduated with, uh, came, worked for eight weeks at the same place I did as soon as we graduated and then went back and started physio. Um, I never thought to do that. It's too late now. <laughs> this, it's not too late. There's still time. Uh, oh, I don't know if you no. want to, but there's still time. There's always time. <laughs> no, I've got my three degrees. I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> tap. Someone else's turn. <laughs> I did actually entertain briefly one more degree. What is it? Um, Master of Child Public Policy. Ooh. Why? Um, because I felt like that would be a really nice thing to add to my repertoire of interests. So I've always been um, interested in, um, you know, better outcomes for kids and families. And so um, given that my experience is all in that area and I've got kind of interested in um, the potential of participation around reducing for reducing 
child poverty, looking at participation for parents or families and looking also at participation for kids as a sort of social determinant of um, health and well-being, but also as a way to kind of lift families out of poverty. Um, but I thought that probably the thing that might be missing if I wanted to do that was how to influence policy around it. Um, and so that's something I have entertained briefly. Um, but I've, yeah, I've got enough to do, I think, this week. This week? Well, I don't know. If you, you don't have to enroll this week, but no. put it on the Maybe to-do list. Day. Put it on the to-do list. I'll put it on my to-do list. I do. Yeah, I do remember day. talking to, actually, it was Rob uh, Pereira, who, as part of his PhD, yeah. was about, uh, OT's influence on policy, and I remember having a chat with him uh, at some conference that we were at uh, about, and he was saying his belief was that that was going to be kind of the next space that OT needed to move into was that uh, policy influence because at the t- at the time, which would have been actually I think it was Mel- it must have been the Victorian conference, it would have been like two thousand fourteen, fifteen, something like Absolutely that. Absolutely agree. Three or four years ago, um, at the time, there was it was just as the NDIS was rolling out in Australia, uh, and there was a lot of policy change on big scale, statewide, and national scale, and we were just essentially trying to pick up the bits and pieces that were falling out of you know Canberra. Um, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of sort of influence there, and that's where at the time. Uh, OT Australia, the national body here, was starting to make a big push to try and have more influence uh, in those policy spaces. But uh, his his view at the time, anyway, and I haven't spoken to him about it recently, but his view at the time was this is this is where OT needs to be pushing to have influence. Like it's all well and good, you know, health promotion and that kind of thing, but we need to be able to have our voice as a profession heard on a scale that's going to be able to have a massive impact on the people we work with. I absolutely agree. I think that we have a really um, amazingly interesting perspective to bring to looking at social determinants and looking at health policy. Um, And I don't know, and I apologise to anyone who is um, working in this area, I don't know of anybody who is influencing policy internally. So we can influence policy through um, writing submissions and, Mm. you know, lending our voice to the mental health review or whatever it might be. But it would be really nice to see more OTs working in the policy, in the poli- you know, in government or in policy offices, being analysts and looking at um, helping to shape policy. We think about at sort of local or national um, body um, politics. You could see a really interesting role in terms of looking at what's happening at the local area around the way that resources are used in that public health initiative and all those sorts of ideas all the way through to a sort of government level as well. Yeah. Um, Okay. I I was just going to say also I see that sitting really nicely in a health promotion space so I do think there is um, in the other place I think we need more studies and I really hate saying this out loud because someone's going to say I should do them is um, (laughs) looking at cost-benefit and cost-effectiveness and looking at, I know um, the UK have done some really amazing work looking at, you know, the cost of, well, the cost saving of an occupational therapist um, and, um, you know, looking at health economics from, that's another place I think OT should be thinking about going because we know anecdotally that I, I always talk, I'm teaching a group work paper at the moment and talk to the students about cost-benefit, you can't get away from the cost-benefit. Um, effectiveness of um, group work 
because it's not the only driver, but it's a it's a pretty good one. Um, when you look at how getting an OT involved might reduce the number of bed days or reduce the number of um, rehabilitation days or whatever it might be, I think that it's time for us to have that data um, in a much more meaningful way because I think that's what governments listen to. So when are you going to start looking at that? Thank you very much. <laughs> I've actually made friends with the health economist. So it is something I am kind of interested in looking at a little bit more. Um, yeah, but again, it can go on the list. <laughs> you just, you're just can't, too can't busy. Can't do it all. You're just too busy. How long did it take to even tee this chat up? You're that busy. <laughs> it's been months. I know. Well, that was also me being slightly nervous because I didn't know what you were going to ask me. Oh, just- but I don't, really, I don't really feel like I have anything interesting to talk about. Why have you been talking so far? <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I can fill up a couple of hours of just no, that's fine. on. That's fine. It doesn't have to be interesting to anyone else. As long as I'm interested, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the rest of them, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Very cool. Yeah, it's Very just cool. having a chat. That's what I do. So those are the places I think we should go. Public health or population health, health economists do you and think, public policy. Do you think, so look, thinking about that, uh, like I say OT from a public policy point of view, that it would be a similar, how would I say this? So I'm thinking about, you know, becoming more occupation-based or maintaining your occupation base as a clinician on the ground level. Do you think those sort of similar things from a policy level, like occupational language, et cetera, would be as, as important or is it a completely different sort of playing field? Um, I think it's about being able to bring that lens to policy. So just being able to look at, um, because one of the things I find quite interesting when I look at um, strategic documents or policy documents is they do have a particular bent. They do Mm. have a particular lens. Flavour. Yeah. And so um, it would be quite exciting, I think, to influence that. Um, Or to just, I mean, often when you look, there's not a lot, or I don't know, I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but um, you look at some of the strategy health strategy documents, Um, uh, what people are doing often isn't part of the conversation or often is mentioned as part of the, um, what the policy will address or what it will, um, but it's not, it's not embedded or not detailed in a way that um, really speaks to that. And it's, I mean, we think about person, environment, occupation, the relationship between those things, you know, like the environment, how the environment's used. Um, Yeah, it's all, it's all, I think one of the things, though, it speak it requires us to be or OTs to be confident in who we are as therapists and what we offer, but also it requires us to be more political, and that I think is a that's where the challenge lies. And I know that there are, um, I mean, I've got my nice New Zealand perspective, but uh, and I know across the world OTs in different areas like South Africa have had to become more political. Um, But I think as a profession, that is something we need to be less afraid of uh, as a whole. It's about um, standing up and and making a particular um, claim or a particular stake or a particular, you know, an advocacy and um, politicalness. And that I think that comes from a history of, you know, who we are and where we came from and we haven't been political as a profession. We probably haven't had to be up until this point. I I think we've probably always had to be, but 
haven't for lots of reasons, mostly because we're a female-dominated profession. I mean, that's the uh, apologies to the <laughs> to the man across the camera, but um, we. That's, I'm are, well aware who I am <laughs> surrounded by. It's fine. Yeah, and as women, we haven't. We, you know, we haven't. Um, and it's really interesting to see. Uh, nursing, for example, have become more political. And it it serves us well as a profession to think about stepping into that space and making um, our voice heard. How do we do that, given that you like highlighting that who we are as a profession is very much shaped by who we're made up of? So the fact that we're a female-dominated profession very much has an influence on the fact that, you know, we might not be as political as some other professions or as even as, think, as even as assertive as some other professions sometimes. Do you, how, do, how do we overcome that to get into a space that maybe we're not currently designed to be in? By not underestimating the power of a small step. And that um, I think one of the things I try to do as often as possible is submit, make a submission on a bill or a, a policy or a strategy document, make sure that my voice is heard and make sure that I put occupational therapist when they ask me what I do. Because I do think that that, it feels like a small thing, but it is actually quite an important and empowering thing too. Because if collectively we, I mean, you can just go onto the New Zealand government website and I'm sure it's the same all across the world. You can go onto the government website and make a submission on whatever happens to be top at the moment. They've got papers and strategy documents and all kinds of stuff there and they're asking for people, government are asking for people to give feedback. And um, it just is something I think, you know, like when the association asks, our association asks for people to stand up and take a stance on something or to be a representative at government or at a government meeting about something, I think we should step into that space really confidently and say, yep, we'll go there, we'll do that, we'll say that, we'll... Um, and it is it is a balancing act because, um, you know, a lot of our roles are government funded. And so, you know, you do need to think about um, how you're going to do this in a way that, especially if you want to critique something like um, yep. the ways that services are designed or delivered, or if you uh, a particular strategy comes out that you don't agree with, um, and you, but you're entitled as a, as, as a citizen to, yep. you know, have a say in these things. It's really cool to see also more, um, like, um, coming out of South Africa, more um, the, of these critical perspectives on um, sort of political, uh, the, I think I've got a book right there, the politics of occupation-centred practice, Nick Pollard. There we go, right there. There you go. Shout out to Nick <laughs> right Pollard. Here, right here on my, next to me. Um, Here's one we prepared earlier. <laughs> <laughs> does seem a little bit like that. Um <laughs> that there are sort of more um, voices that are challenging us to think about that. And if we are authentically, um, you know, if we have a justice um, perspective mm -hmm. and we are authentically interested in occupational rights and occupational justice, then we can't pretend we're apolitical because we're not. So small steps so again that's uh, i guess that might be the correlation that i can pull between the, the coal face clinician and this bigger thing is the start with the small 
And don't so don't understand don't don't understand don't underestimate the 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 power that lots of little small things can add up to be. And the power of a disagreement, you know, like that. One of the things that that is easy to do is to stay quiet on our shoes or to not lend your voice to a. a um, and that I do. I look. It's very easy for me to sit here and say it's easy to do because I see some of those things pop up in the four OT pages, and I think I'm just not going down that track. I fundamentally disagree with this post or this um, mm. question, um, and I find it really hard to. Um, and, and to engage with um, with some a, content, a, yeah, I guess online's not a very good example though because it always feels a little bit um, attacky. Yeah, yeah. Um, just just by the nature of it. But I think if someone has a different view from you, explore what that's about. Find out about that. You know, if you um, want to go to a rally or get behind something or um, make a submission or um, and like we have this really cool paper in our program which is about um, teaching students about how to influence systems and it's a really cool uh, it's a re- if we're going to be advocates enablement skills advocacy <laughs> then you got to do it enablement skills is another one of those things similar to categorizing occupations where I'm like why because some of them, I, some of them don't make a lot of sense to me. Then don't use those ones. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't. I don't think that um, Liz Townsend and Helene Politico are going to turn up on your front doorstep and say um, hello. You know, and all the other authors. That sorry, would be cool. D- <laughs> um, I have the just, microphone and ready. Say, <laughs> and say uh, you're not using these right. Or How that's dare not you that. not specialise? Uh, yeah, or design, or design, um, or educator. And I do think all, like, one of the things, and I'm a huge fan of Simopi, so I am completely biased in my conversations <laughs> about it, but um, I but I don't use all the bits. I don't pretend that the CPF, PPF follows this. I mean, has, if anyone does therapy, that is the first little circle and then the second little circle and then the third little circle, like, that just doesn't it's, happen. It's just wasting time. Um, but that's not what it's there for. No. It's there for um, to provide some structure and a framework for what might happen yeah, in yeah. this relationship with another person and where you might go next and some things that you might need to think about. But it's not. I don't find it prescriptive. I don't find the CMRP prescriptive. I don't find the enablement skills prescriptive. I think they just give me a lens or a framework or a scaffold or a you know some parameters in which to think about what I'm doing mm. and to talk about it and when we talk about the enablement skills you and I both know what those are you know yeah, it, yeah. it is a sh- it is a shared link yeah yeah and that's OTs don't I don't know we don't like shared language I don't know why we don't we just we avoid it it's scary but we're, we're worried that well, we're worried that it's not shared broad enough that people are going to understand it. I think we're more scared that we're going to say something and people are going to go, "What are you talking about?" And then we explain it like that's I know, the but that's, same. That's, that's, we don't get that far a lot of the time. Uh, and I, one of the things, one of my favourite stories from my PhD is a therapist um, challenging a surgeon. So a surgeon said to her. Um, I want you to measure the range of motion at the joint after I finished my surgery. Um, and she said, actually, I don't want to do that anymore. 
would it be okay if we got the physio to do that? And I'll tell you some things. I'm paraphrasing you, by the way. Yeah. And I'll tell you some things about how this kid's getting on with the things they need and want to do every day. And she waited. And he said, that sounds so much better. Why haven't you been doing that all along? <laughs> and I think I think sometimes what happens is we make assumptions about um, whether this will be accepted or whether this is the right thing to do. Um, and so we rule it out before we even have a go. Yeah, and, yeah. The, you know, to stand up to her, <laughs> you know, where, where's the power in that relationship? Stand up and say, um, actually, I'm not going to do that anymore. Would it be cool if I did it like this? Yeah. And for him to say, absolutely, I wish you'd been doing that all along. Um, is it, it, I think it just speaks to the um, how we – we re- we limit our own possibility by not asking or not standing up and saying actually I think this is this is what we should be doing. But why did we get to that stage in the first place? <laughs> That's all that stuff about who we are and where we are in the picking order and all those sorts of things. Um, and I just don't own any of that shit anymore. I'm not interested. <laughs> Fair enough. But this is this is the advantage of getting older. Is that, is that you just um, care less? I, you can, I, no, you can focus on more important things. Well, let's call it prioritizing. Yeah. Um, we'll I um, I pick my arguments, and whether OT is a valid, real, um, evidence-informed, robust profession isn't one of them anymore. We're absolutely cool. I'm in there. I'm done. I'm ready to go. Anyone who spends five minutes with me knows how much I love being an OT. Um, and so um, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm now much more interested in where can we make, you know, a really interesting influence or where can we do something that um, – and actually, uh, same same as everyone else who got into this profession, like the, the stuff about – all that stuff about who we are and blah, 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 it pales in comparison to making a meaningful difference in someone's life. Like when a client says to me, oh, my God, you're the first person who's ever asked me that, this is what I want to do. Mm. Or a student who's really struggling with this concept looks at me and says, oh, my God, I get it. This is what that is. And you're like, yes. Go for, <laughs> go do for, conquer, spread the good word. <laughs> yeah, do it. Um, that's what I'm into. That's what it's all about. We seem to, uh, while we talk about while we spend time worrying about whether we're good enough, we lose sight of the what we can offer that is meaningful and effective and as client centred as we can possibly be. Um, you know, all those sorts of things. So you're and you're. Correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a long time since I've looked at it. Your PhD looked at that, like how to maintain yeah, that. Um, how to change your practice. So it was, um, um, and it's, look, um, my doctorate sits um, alongside the work of Claire Wilding and a whole lot of other people who've done some um, amazing work in the space of sort of um, helping people to change their practice, to come back to the roots of occupation to um, change the way they think about, talk about, and do occupational therapy. Um, and it is, yeah, it was, it's really not that difficult. It is a matter of finding people who will um, get behind you and support you and want doing something to doing something different 
um, changing, using the language, using the language across all the studies in this space. The language of occupational therapy is the number one thing or the language of occupation is the number one thing that will shift your practice to a different place. Um, and then after you've done that, changing what you do. You know, after you started changing the way you talk about what you do, changing what you do flows really nicely from that. Um, and I, um, yeah, it's not rocket science, it's occupational therapy. <laughs> I like that. That's going to be my new quote. It's not rocket science, it's occupational therapy. It's better than rocket science. It is. It's, uh, there's, a, there's more art in it than rocket science. Rocket science is boring. Yeah. It's just making things I, explode and fly through space. But thank God for the science. Like I also oh, yeah. think that there is a um, the scholars and the sort of founders of occupational science have really given us a um, solid foundation for um, yeah on which to kind of that, that's shift help to shift the profession down the path less travelled. And I guess which I'm hoping will be more travelled. More travel. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It's going to be a well worn <laughs> path. <laughs> a well-worn series of paths. Come with me to the dark side. No, not to the dark side, to the light side. Well, we have a dark side of occupation too. So oh, we do? We can we can go down yes. the dark side and the light side. Many, multiple paths. <laughs> multiple this, paths. This is starting to turn into well, some sort of like multi-universe theory. But that's the beauty of occupational therapy. Occupation travels anywhere. You can take it wherever you want to take it. There are multiple paths. I just think in my own career I've worked in five or six different places, totally different places, AUT being one of them. (laughs) Multiple times at AUT. (laughs) I wasn't counting that. But, um, you know, research and workforce development and leadership and, you know, clinical practice and there's just so many things that you can do. Um, And the thing that travels, I, I talk to the students all the time about how the context knowledge is the context knowledge, but the things that you'll take with you those transferable skills and concepts will always be your occupation. It's it's been interesting for me. Uh, obviously, relatively new to the the teaching side of it. Um, like one of the things I've always loved about OT is the fact that it's kind of that it's it's got an art and it's got a science. Yeah, and I can translate the science really easily to them, and then it's taking a lot more conscious thought for me to go, well, why did I know that? Or how did, was, why did I do it that way? Yeah, why did you do it that way and not this other way? Or, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I have had students that have you know, taken the mickey out of me because apparently one of my very common answers is, well, it depends. <laughs> I say that all the I time know. I know. It depends. It's like, well, oh, so you mean this? Well, it depends. But that's what you it just depends. said. I'm like, yeah, I know I just said it, but it depends. But it depends. Um, I say that all the time too. I do think too, though, that there's, um, like we think about the art and the science, I totally agree with that. Mm. But I do th- also think that fundamental to occupational therapy is relationship. And mm-hmm. so if people can that bit right if they know how to and particularly for students if they know how to um listen listen number one skill just just, just that to start with yeah just listen hear what's being said what's being not said what's the way that people say things the um how how the story is narrated like the the privilege of hearing and i know it sounds really cheesy but it is a privilege to hear 
someone's experience and to um, have a role in changing their, you know, the next step in what they do or to influence or to guide or analyze, build, coach, collaborate. Specialize. <laughs> specialize. I, I put occupation in the specialized box. That's how I, mm. with the enablement skills, I, um, Actually, I shouldn't say I. We um, discussed in the study that I undertook that we um, occupation was our specialty, and so that we we reframed or re- reworked that section to um, really bring occupation, the occupation. In strongly in the specialised bit. Um, and so I think that once you know, like all the stuff that you know about how to do occupational therapy isn't useful if you don't have that person on board, you know, hmm. the person that you're working with or the people that you're working with. And so that's the kind of fundamental bit, I think. Too. And I think that's learning from a narrative or exploring a narrative has always been something that I get a lot out of. I love it. That's why I started a podcast. So I can talk to people yeah. and learn things from their narrative and then record them and you know, yeah. share them with other people in the hope that someone else might learn or take something from, you know, these narratives. Yeah. but. And I, I've been able to, in teaching some of the techniques, actually, like, I've been asked, like, can you give us thing? So, I've, like, interviewed people, like, students in class to show, like, how, you know, a certain technique, an interview technique or that kind of thing might work. But even then, there's still just something that I haven't quite got my head around being able to, like, I'll be able to listen to a conversation and go, so it sounds like this might be happening, but how did I make that link? And, it's, yeah. and to me, it's like I, I can make that link because I've got experience in doing it and it's something I've done for years and I know what I'm looking for. But how, how do I teach you to do that without just going, eh, just go and practice it and see what happens? Like the, yeah. uh, that That's the bit I'm still trying to get my head around is the, you know, translating that- the art side of it or the the non-sciencey stuff into something that they can actually take away uh, from the lesson. Or something that they can see. Yeah. Like the thing is too yeah, yeah. that I, I think that as educators and I look across my team and I look across, you know, when I get the privilege of going to the Council of OT Educators or going to a conference, when I, the, the educators have their role models. You know, they are actually also – showing students how to do this because of who they are and how they are with the students. So I think there is a, um, there's a, because when you look at that concept, which my favourite concept, therapeutic use of self, what the hell is that? Like, that sounds something so fancy. And um, yet, you know, it's this really nefarious, um, subjective, uh, fluffy thing that's about um, active listening and reframing and um, where you position yourself and whether you put your hand on someone's shoulder or not. Like that stuff's really hard to – and also if you teach it to someone, it becomes forced. You know, when yeah. you're sitting beside someone, you must – nod three times and then respond, you know, all that kind of stuff. There is something inherent that only comes from being with other people, but not necessarily just as clients. I think it's helping students to see that every interaction they have, whether it's with someone familiar or someone new or the lecturer or whatever it might be, is an opportunity for them to learn how to be um, both um, to use themselves as a therapeutic Mm. um, 
medium, but also to learn how to be professional, to be a professional. Yeah, and uh, that's something, and that's pretty much what I've been trying to do because the only way I can think of doing it is being, just by showing being, them being the you example. Are. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's like I've had some. Of the, uh, I haven't had any feedback from my, actually, I'm teaching second years at the moment, but like a couple of the fourth years have talked to me about uh, like these podcasts and, oh, you know, about interviewing technique and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm, to me, I'm not, I'm not interviewing. This is just who I am. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. just sitting down and I'm talking with either people that I know or people that I haven't met. And like the questions that I ask are from genuine interest or, looking for that's why i stumble and i think i'm i pause and because i'm thinking like it's not scripted it's not like i'll ask you a question i don't know what the answer is going to be because i'm genuinely asking a question i'm not like expecting an answer like hey alan how are you like it doesn't it doesn't your name for the record yes you know (laughs) it's it's and that's what i'm trying like i teach i've taught a lot of different sort of techniques and tried to scale them a bit like, yes, okay, there's these types of questions or these, you know, particular skills that you can use, but it depends. Um, you know, ideally, like the gold standard is that you want to be able to just have a conversation with someone and use these skills either, I don't even, at the, to start with, once you start getting good at it, it'll become subconscious. You won't be thinking about it. And then when you get really good at it, You'll come back to thinking about it again, but be able to use those skills to control a conversation, to get whatever information is that you actually need. Like I don't, even when I had uh, specific checklists or whatever that I needed to fill out, like I didn't take it with me. No, I know what's on it and I'll get the information and I'll go and tick all the boxes later outside the room. Like it's not what I'm there but for. But I think that, that closing that loop then becomes really important and that yeah. is self-aware, self-awareness and reflection, like being able to step back and think, and to, you know, critically look at how did that go? What could I have done differently? What did I learn at that time about myself? You know, all those sorts of things. And so we do a lot of reflection in our program. I imagine that most occupational therapy programs do um, because it is, you know, you, you have to build that in as part of the process is to stop and say, yeah. what, what happened here? <laughs> what, why did this go really well? Or why did this not go quite to plan? Yeah, and that, that was probably the one thing, if I had to pinpoint one thing that I wish I had more of when I went through uni, it would have been that because it was something that, yeah, we did a bit of it, but uh, I was me back then and just went, why am I doing this? This is stupid. Like, why am I trying to work out what I should have learned? That's your job. You're supposed to teach me this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then it was, it was probably – four or five years out of the uni before it finally went, oh, that's why. This is how it works and it does work. And yeah. I started doing it and, you know, I have been doing it ever since. But I wonder, like, if I had have got my head around it earlier, like what issues might I have not had to sort of deal with or that kind of thing. But I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, I don't, again, I don't have any evidence for it, but I wonder, we spend a lot of time looking at reflection in our program, but I wonder about the number, you know, what happens when people hit the coalface and people hit the context and the, that environmental press. And if I keep going back, I love that concept of, um, you know, that the environment shapes their 
what they can do every yeah. day and taking time to think about me and my experience of this often doesn't get built in. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and you get home and you collapse and watch the Netflix and on with the next day kind of thing, as opposed to actually, unless something really big happens and then you're kind then of you forced into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're, you're forced into debriefing or reflection as a result of whatever happens. Yeah. Um, but the, it's the everyday things, you know. And I think the other thing we need to capture better are the things we do really well. Mm. Because we're human, and we never we, reflect um, on the good things. Well, we sh- some people might, but some people might, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not regular practice. No, and it's also way easier to reflect when things don't go well. Yeah. You know, you stop and take the time if it doesn't go to plan. Um, I am supervising some students on placement, and I had my first meeting with them on Friday, and I absolutely loved it. And I just left, um, just completely buzzing about. And I said to um, my program leader, Helene, um, every every educators should supervise placement because it's so exciting to see the consolidation of their skills and knowledge to see them start to grow their confidence you know they're emerging occupational therapists and it's really exciting to see that process go kind of full circle um and I walked away from that spent quite a lot of time thinking you know um why I'd enjoyed it why I enjoyed it so much yeah I think when I first started it, 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 again, like a lot of the things we've talked about today, it was a matter of starting small. Like, yes, it wasn't something that was embedded in my sort of day-to-day, you know, to-do list kind of thing. But I started reflecting on, to start with, outside of work things. So, like, if I went to a conference or I went to a course or it was generally about a learning activity is where I started. So, it was, you know, after the fact, reflecting on, what I learned, why, I, how it fit with what I currently knew, all that kind of stuff. And that's like I would write it up and, you know, I used to put it on my website and whatnot and use that as examples for other people and start discussions again, start discussions on my reflections and then would refine that reflection kind of thing. But then, then after that, it started to sort of come into, well, this is what happened at work today kind of thing. What worked, what didn't. Why did it happen like that? I've done this before and it got a different outcome. Why? What was different? Et cetera, et cetera. That's a really cool thing to reflect on. And then it started with – and then after that was when I started to be able to go, well, this is what I'm going to do. What am I expecting to happen? Um, And then I can use that as sort of the reference point to do a sort of a post-event kind of reflection. So, again, it started – Small and it started with something easy. It started with, I went to this event. This is what I learned. This is what I already knew. Like, start really easy and then you can get into the more complex. Like, how did that make you Don't feel? Don't underestimate the power of a small step. That's it. I like that. I think that's going to be your new motto. <laughs> my students think my motto is, don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> well, that, that's both of, the, both of those work. They're pretty similar. <laughs> pretty yeah. similar in a way. I'm sure we could find a link. We'll need to get T-shirts printed with both, I think. Merch. Just one on the front, <laughs> one on the back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't underestimate the power of a small step. I, I think that's how change happens. Yep. You know, just um, whether it's, um, you know, my children aren't allowed to call anyone crazy. You know, just one small thing that um, I think that, you know, and, and people may not agree with me, and that's okay, but it's my family and I'm allowed to do what I want. Um, and that's, I don't like anyone being called crazy. Um, I don't like, I, you know, I, I do, um, if people, 
say something. Oh, suffering from mental illness, for example, is one that I have a real problem with. Suffering um, from anything. Any disability, it gets me. It's not your call to decide whether they're suffering. It's up to the individual to decide whether they're suffering. And if they think they're suffering or that they are suffering, that's their their work. But it's not my job to make that assessment. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just, uh, and again, I think it it comes back to language. You know, so much of it is about the words that we choose to use because you you could use a different word. Oh, there's heaps of words. (laughs) We've got lots of words. I'm just conscious I just need to check the time. It is 12.30. It's not. It's 2.30. <laughs> you and your silly time zones. <laughs> I'm ahead of you in the world. You're in the future. I can tell you what happens. Lunch is kind of average. The weather's a bit shit. <laughs> oh, weather's perfect, yeah. In the future. You know, in two hours, if it's raining, I'll like, I'll believe you. <laughs> You're not, it's not raining. It's just it's overcast. overcast. Well, in two yeah. hours, because it's perfect and like 20... Probably 28, 30 degrees here. In two no. hours, if it's overcast, I'll be like, whoa. Did you say 28 or 30? Yeah. Okay, not that here. It's 13. 13. It, it gets that in winter here. Like, that's it. That's as low as we get usually. No, it's 13 degrees. Most people, it's, it's warm here though. Like, Townsville, just in general. Let me have a look. It's generally warm. Oh, no, it's hold a fib. It's 27. There you go. It's meant to get up to 29. <laughs> but it's not summer. I know. That's not a summer temperature for here. All right, go back to work and I'll go and get my kid. Good idea. Enjoy. Bye. Bye-bye now. See ya. I don't even know how to get out of here. Like this. Like this.